So uh, this morning we're looking at uh, a holy sexuality. Um, obviously, this is can be quite a big topic. So let me just pray for the sermon, and then we'll get into it. All right. But let me, as I pray, I also want to pray for those of you who've had a um, difficult relationship with with sexuality. And so even like as we come to this topic, maybe you feel a little bit sensitive or tender. I want to pray for you as well. Um, and I'm hoping that by the end of this sermon that you, you would experience something of God's healing over you, His grace over you, and even something of His freedom and liberty over you. So let me just pray for all of us and anyone who may be particularly sensitive. Father God, um, as we come to Your Word this morning, and we look at a, a pretty um, big topic for all of us, uh, especially given the country that we live in. Lord, we pray that your word would speak loudly over us. Um, we pray that your truth would be louder than any other truth. Uh, we pray, Father God, that the enemy wouldn't even uh, kind of come parallel to truth and cause any uh, shame um, or guilt. But we pray, God, that you, the lifter of heads, uh, the one who brings freedom, the liberator of the oppressed, would come and speak words of kindness and healing and love and freedom. Uh, we pray where correction needs to be heard, that we would hear correction uh, like a fatherly rebuke with uh, authority um, and truth, but that we would not be fearful of the one who loves us the most, and that it would be safe and good to turn to you. Um, it would be well for us to turn to you and seek to honor you, to glorify you, to be healed by you. And God, wherever the enemy's got something right in someone's life, we pray today that you, supernatural God, uh, by your Holy Spirit, you'd come and work upon people's hearts and minds and bodies, and that you would restore and heal and supernaturally bring freedom, Father God. Um, we thank you that we can believe for these things and trust for these things and ask for these things because of who you are, not because of who we are. Um, and so we rely on you this morning in your precious and wonderful name. Amen. Um, okay, so maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you've just become a Christian. Maybe you're coming back to faith. Maybe you're just checking out Jesus. You're curious about Him. Who is this guy? You've heard about Him and you want to know more. And you've come to church. Um, there's certain messages that you expect to hear. Like if you talk about money, people expect to hear about money in church. This is not a sermon about money at all, but what's, what's or volunteers, or when it comes to the issue of sex, there's certain things that are out there. And so I just want to kind of list more as a way of getting them out the way, um, things that people uh, either I've heard myself, read myself, um, or heard from someone else saying that they've heard themselves uh, around the church's communication on sex. Um, so these are just some of the things that may be going around. Uh, sex is an amazing gift from God and the greatest thing in the whole entire world. Uh, only married people should have sex. This is why Christian single people pray for Jesus to delay His return. Sex isn't a big deal. It's giving pleasure to someone, so be a good friend. When I get married and I can have sex, I'll never struggle with temptation again. I'll also love my job and enjoy all the vegetables I currently hate. <laughs> Masturbation teaches you to be homosexual and causes blindness. Masturbation is a great way to avoid sinful temptation and certain cancers. Give us today our daily bread means I should have sex with my spouse every day. Sex is, I, I, I literally know a, a couple who pray that every day. <laughs> sex is a duty I cannot deny my spouse. 
I'm commanded to grin and bear it. If your spouse wants sex, give it to them, or they will suffer temptation, leave you, and go elsewhere. The marriage bed is undefiled, means that before marriage, everything sexual is sin, but after marriage, I can do whatever I want and look at whatever I want as long as we both agree. Sex is only for making babies or sincerely trying. Sex is to be endured, not enjoyed. Sex is not something to speak about with others. Thanks, bud. Sex is not something to speak about with others. Any of you heard any of those themes? All right, I'm just going to switch mics. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks so much at the back there. Um, so here's what we're going to look at today. Four, four, uh, four things this morning. We're going to look at knowing God uh, in the creation, knowing God in the fall, knowing God in the resurrection, and knowing God in the consummation. So we're going to look at something of a gospel arc as it relates to sex. All right. Um, Ultimately, God gave sex to us as a symbol of knowing Him. So, in this way, uh, sex itself uh, can't fully satisfy anyone's longings. Because at its best, it points us to something that we're still longing for. Which is to fully know God personally and intimately. As we go through this, don't sexualize knowing God. That's what we do in our, in our country is we sexualize everything. Australia has been called the most sexualized nation in the world. We can take anything and sexualize it. Um, when, we, when the Bible talks about intimacy and sex being a symbol towards that, we can sexualize knowing God rather than understanding that sex is about the intimacy we can experience with God more fully and more closely. Um, so sex points us to something else, and this sounds a little bit odd, but I'm going to show you exactly what I mean. Uh, through scriptures, and we're going to work from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and we're going to see how God uh, calls us through various means, but this morning, through a holy sexuality, to know Him and uh, to be His people. So in Genesis 4 verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew, his wi- knew Eve his wife, and she con- bore, uh, conceived and bore Cain. That wasn't a different way to have children back then. If you know your wife, she's going to get pregnant. So keep it a mystery until you're ready for children. Who's my wife? I don't know. I don't want to know because as soon as I know, I'm going to have a child. It's not that kind of knowing. Uh, it's, a, it's sex. Adam knew his wife. Uh, he had sex with his wife. And she conceived and bore a son, Cain. The NRV translates it more explicitly or more plainly. Adam made love to his wife, Eve. The Hebrew here, the word for know is yada. Yeah, yada. Um, and it's not the only way that, that the Bible in the Old Testament speaks about sex, but it is the kind of preferred way that the Bible speaks about it. So it could choose, you could choose the language from Genesis 2.24 over there, it's becoming one flesh. The, 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 writer of the, the writers of the Old Testament could continue that language, the two becoming one flesh. Uh, in Genesis 19.26 and 30, there's the laying down with language. You could carry on that. But the writers choose to use the language of knowing, that there's something in the knowing language, yada, that it wants to convey. And this is uh, what I want to show you then. Interestingly, in Jeremiah 31, it starts to come home. God says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. This is the word yada. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, 
for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So what, what God's saying there is something is keeping His people separate from them. That something is called sin. And He says there will be a time where I will work upon the situation so that I can draw them to Myself and they will know Me. They will yada Me. They will know Me personally, experientially, intimately. In the New Testament, just to carry it on through, in Matthew 1.25, it says, um, Joseph did not know Mary until she gave birth to Jesus. Here again, the translations help us understand this. So the NIV says, he did not consummate their marriage. The NLT says, he did not have sexual relations with that woman. We know a president who reads the NLT, obviously. The Amplified says, he kept her a virgin until she had given birth. The Greek word here for no is gnosko. So the Bible, even though the languages are changing of the Bible, the theme remains the same. That there's something in the knowing of one another, in a marriage relationship, the, the sexual intimacy, the oneness of flesh, that the, there's nothing like it that God wants us to know about our relationship with Him, that God wants us to be His people and He wants to be our God. Uh, Jesus says this. He says in John, in the most wonderful prayer, if you want to go read just an incredible prayer that Jesus prays over us, go read John 10. And in verse 14, He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And again, we see this link between God's people and God, that God, that ultimately, what God wants to do is bring us into an intimate knowledge, into, into an intimate relationship, a personal and experiential relationship with Him. If you, if you maybe you have a personal faith in Jesus yet, but you're saying like, I don't yet, I haven't experienced something. People talk about like this overwhelming thing that God does, and they just, it's okay. Don't worry about it. What is guaranteed is that's where God's taking you to not only have a faith in Jesus, but to personally know Him. And so again, the deep intimacy between our husband and wife is pictured uh, as we come to know Jesus. So John Piper and Justin Taylor in their book, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, write, God has designed sexuality as a way to know Him more fully. Can there be anything better for the purpose of sexuality then a signpost to knowing God more fully. I mean, I can't think of something being more dignified than that. That this has been given, that it can point you to something God deeply desires for you. So, remember that in the garden, God had to explain everything to Adam and Eve. They weren't born stupid, they just were born without any knowledge and understanding of of anything. So, God had to explain it all to them. He had to tell them everything what creation was, what it was for, what they were meant for, what they were, what they had to avoid. So in Romans 1.20, Paul writes, God's invisible attributes, namely His power, eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, everything in nature points to the uh, eternal reality of our relationship with God. Everything in nature says there is a creator, there is a God. It can't be understood by itself. If there's no 
creator God, nothing in nature makes sense. It only makes sense in our relationship with God. The scriptures speak about first the natural, then the supernatural. So it means that the universe and the mountains and the oceans show us the vastness and the power of God. And it tells us that the singing of birds and the fragrance of flowers in the spring and the crisp air in winter, in the, uh, in the Perth winter, tells us something about the creativity and the beauty and the dynamics of God and His character and His personality. And so with the intimacy between a man and a woman, Adam's physical relationship with Eve pointed to an eternal reality. It says they were one flesh naked and not ashamed. This is how we're made to walk with God. That picture, that natural picture, points to an ultimate eternal, supernatural picture that we are meant to walk with God in a way that we are totally unashamed and close to Him. That was knowing in the creation. What about knowing God in the fall? So Adam and Eve sinned. We're all born into a broken world. We, we forget this sometimes, that the world is broken. Uh, you know, you have the slogans, how come God does good things? How come God does bad things to good people? And then people counter that with, how come God does good things to bad people? And blah, blah, blah. And the reality is we forget we're in a broken world. The fact that God does anything is a miracle. That He stays interested is a miracle. It's a reflection of His love and kindness and faithfulness. So we're born into this broken world. Paul writes, no one seeks God. So we're, we're made for an intimate relationship with God, but Paul says in our brokenness, no one seeks God. There's something broken in our relationship. Then to the Ephesians, he says, without Jesus, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. So we're not seeking God. We're all dead in our sins. So in our sinful state, our knowledge of God is completely broken. So what happens when your knowledge of what is the bearer of truth, the holder of truth, is broken and gone? What do you do with everything else? You misuse it. You try to make sense of it. You take it and you do whatever you want with it. It says in the Old Testament, there was no king in the land, so each one did as they saw fit. There's no God in our country, so each one takes sex and does with it what they see fit. Right? Because God is the context. That's what I'm trying to show you. Our relationship with God is the context to understand this thing. So if you take our relationship with God away, we're going to use it in, in ways that it's not meant to be. Do you understand that? So Paul says in Romans 1.25, we exchange what we know about God and treat it as a lie. And the outcome is that we worship created things rather than the created. And so uh, it's said of Australia that we're the most sexualized nation in the world. Australians boast that everywhere they go, they are the funnest and most sexual social people wherever they travel. TV shows uh, popularize that. We watched a TV show just this week where a mother says to a son, and a, a British mother says to a British son, oh, I stayed in a hostel with a bunch of Australians. Everyone was just having sex all the time. That's the, that's the Australian, that's how you know us. That's what we're about. That's who we are. That's what we're good for. Why? Because there's no king in the land. Because God doesn't reign, uh, sorry, we don't, as, as a nation, 
We are not a nation under God. God, what is this thing and what do you want us to do with it? What is this blessing that you've given to us and how are we supposed to use it? And so in the absence of truth, we make the created thing God and we serve sex. And if you don't believe me, just look at billboards, TV shows, Instagram. I mean, I encourage you not to go looking around, but, but my point is to say that we are bombarded with sexuality all the time because that is what we worship in the absence of God. I, and by we, I'm saying people, us, all, uh, I'm, not, I'm not particularly saying King's Cross. So what this means is we take good things that God gave us and we uh, try to make God out of them. As Tim Keller says, we take good things and or said, take good things and turn them into ultimate things. So we take work and we try to find enough success in work to give ourselves an, a suitable identity. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I, I'm the best carpenter. Uh, I've made this much money. We try to give ourselves some sort of identity from our work, right? We try to take money uh, and make, get enough of it so that we can have a sense of security from it. As long as we can have this in our bank accounts, we can be secure. Or when we don't have that in our bank accounts, we feel insecure. So we're taking money, which is, which is not a bad thing, and we're turning it into a God thing, right? Or we take enough experiences and adventures to give ourselves a sense of value. How do we know we're alive? Because of the things that we've done. We try to get involved in enough things to give ourselves a sense of purpose. I've done that, and I've done that, and I've done that, and I've got markers to know that I'm, I'm meaningful. My life counts for something. And we take sex, and we use it to try and satisfy our deep longing for the knowledge of God. So God addresses us through the Old Testament. Look how God uses sexual language to describe His broken relationship with Israel. In Ezekiel it says, You thought your beauty was your own. As I read this, just think if this is true of, of our cultural context. You thought your beauty was your own, so you gave yourself sexually to other men. Your beauty became theirs. You took your be the beautiful clothing I gave you to attract worship for yourself and behaved like a prostitute. How could you do such a thing? You also took the jewelry I gave you, turned it into images of men and worshipped them, behaving like a prostitute. Obviously, this is very, very strong language that no one in our context would use. Listen to Jeremiah. Imagine a wife leaves her husband and marries another man. Can her husband take her back? No. This is how you have treated me. You have run around giving yourself to lovers everywhere. Where have you not given yourself away to others? In Hosea, God says, My people consult a wooden idol, a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. Do you see how God uses sexual language to talk about Israel's spiritual adultery, how they're supposed to desire a relationship with Him, and the, a, the best way of describing what it's like when we're not putting God in His place in our lives is prostitution or some sort of sexual immorality. That the beautiful things I've given to you, you've taken and you've used for yourself. You've prostituted yourself. You've taken your physical beauty or your clothing or your jewelry and you've put yourself out there. You, you've, you've looked for the attention of others rather than the attention of God. So the reason that, um, as a nation, they did this 
is because they weren't enjoying their relationship with God. And the reason that Australia is known as the most sexualized nation in the world is because as a nation, we don't have a relationship with God. And, and I would go as far as to say, in Perth, in our culture, the, re the reason we live in such a sexualized city is because people in Perth don't seek to have a relationship with God. I can't remember the exact stats, and I'm getting nervous of moments like this because I know this is recorded, but there's some, I read something about Perth being uh, the only uh, like capital city or English-speaking city in the world that hasn't had some sort of a spiritual revival. And so if the normative thing in our culture, in our city, just think about our city. If the norm is our, in our city is it, we don't really care about God. If He is there, it's fine. He just needs to stay far off. We're getting on with our lives. Then you realize that sex can be used however you want to use it. And that means that at least 97% of our city is going in that direction because 3% uh, of our city goes to church. Uh, so that doesn't mean that everyone who goes to church is necessarily has a relationship with God that they're pursuing. But the point is that I'm saying the normative culture that we walk out of here and into is a sexualized one where it's do as you see fit. Uh, in a role that I have, I get to counsel people and uh, some people out of, the out of this church. And what's intriguing to me is that that at times where I've counseled those who've fallen into sexual immorality, or what would be fall into that category, and I've encouraged them as leaders to go and speak to their spiritual leaders where they serve, they go, they've gone and done that, and the feedback that has come back is, yeah, they've said it's not a big deal, they're not really sure why I'm sharing this. As if I, I had gone, look, I, I stole the candy bar from the shop, I know I shouldn't have, I just want to confess that, what should I do now? I, I really don't know. I, I, like, wh why are you telling me this? It's a $2 candy bar. Go give the store 2 bucks or something. I don't know. In other words, in churches in Perth, the message is coming across, sexuality is not a big deal. God doesn't really care. If you want to sleep with people, go ahead. So the cultures got into the church in our city. This is not out there. This is here. It's like, yeah. So, young couples, you know, may sincerely ask, how far can we go? What does this question kind of reflect? The question, how far can we go? Well, it's probably like an, an honest question for some, some young couples. Like, just tell us, what are the boundaries? And we'll stay in them. What it's really saying is, I, I'm not pursuing an intimate relationship with God, so I'm not really sure what's okay or not. I just want to know how, how, I, how far I can pursue a physical relationship with this person. That's kind of uh, the boundary setting. When we sit down with married couples and there's sexual sin in, involved, you know, it's, oftentimes it may be that like one, one has looked at porn or something like that and, and the other one, what happens is what, you, what, you, you, what, you, what is real is that there's someone there who feels uh, very guilty and shame-filled and there's someone there who feels very hurt that they've lost trust. There's a real breakdown. 
And it's very easy for the couple to get lost in each other. Like, uh, like you know, let's say he's looked at porn and for her to go, what did I do wrong? Why am I not enough? What, what's happening? And for the problem is not here. The problem is that at some point, the husband wasn't really pursuing Jesus to satisfy the longings of his heart. His wife was never going to be his savior. His wife was never going to satisfy every longing. And we turn to other things because Jesus is not satisfying that longing. Can Jesus satisfy the longing? Absolutely. That's exactly what He does. But we're pursuing something else. And it's not so much interpersonal. It has major interpersonal consequences, major pain and breakdown and hurt. And there has to be rebuilding of trust and forgiveness. And God has to work in this. But the, the work can only start once they turn their eyes to Jesus. They say, Jesus, we have looked at other things to satisfy us. Please help us. Please show us what our hearts have turned to, what longing is being unfulfilled, and how we've tried to satisfy that in other things. So most issues with sex point to an issue in our relationship with God. And that's why Jesus had to step in. So knowing God in the resurrection... So even though we've got these misplaced longings, God steps in, steadfast lover, and He pursues us. He comes chasing after us. Jesus goes to the cross in our place. He undoes what was done in Genesis. Uh, Adam and Eve, remember in Genesis, were naked and unashamed. They enjoy a relationship with God. They enjoy a relationship with one another because of God. So Jesus goes to the cross. He gets stripped naked and ashamed. They do their very best to, to put all of our shame on Him. It's the most shameful and painful death that, that they can possibly think up. And Jesus dies in our place, naked and ashamed. So that Jesus can uh, clothe us, robe us, dress us in His righteousness and dignity. Whoever you are and whatever your past is and whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, Jesus has died and carried shame and been stripped bare so that He can robe you in His righteousness and dress you in His dignity to restore and to heal. We read in 2 Corinthians, it says, If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All the reasons for our guilt and shame are gone. All the reasons to walk unashamed in the presence of God have come. And, and history is moving forward towards the full healing in Jesus Christ. If you read the letter that referred to the surgery in the newsletter this week, I I tried to quote um, Ray Ortland. I don't know if I did a good job of it or not, but he says something like this. All the suffering that will ever exist is limited to this life. There will be no suffering after this life. And as we walk with Jesus, 
He is taking off shame and guilt. He's not putting it on. It's coming off bit by bit, more and more. In a section to the Ephesians, Paul writes, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. Put away bitterness and anger and wrath and slander. I mean, these are like things everyone says is wrong. Uh, Be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving. Wow, that's amazing. Imagine being like that. Because, uh, Because this is how Jesus treats you. As God's own children, you can now imitate His love. What does love look like? Walk in in the kind of love you receive from Jesus, who willingly gave himself up for us. So stop sexual immorality, stop impurity, stop coveting what doesn't belong to you. What's the context for Paul saying that you can love one another, that you can stop sexual immorality, that you can walk in purity? What's the context? As you have received from him. It's in your relationship, your intimate, loving, pure, looked after relationship with Jesus that he says you are now empowered to say no to other things. When will you not say no to other things? When you are not receiving from Jesus his love and faithfulness, his heart for you, in other words. When we are not enjoying the heart of Jesus for us, it's hard to know how to say no to other things. And sometimes that's why I think within our Christian faith, we kind of legalize it again. Or, or make it, you go one or the other way. Like churches in Perth, they go, sex is no longer a big deal. God got over that years ago. It's now fine. Just do what you please, see fit. Or we legalize it. And anyone with any sort of sexual morality feels such guilt and shame, they would never dare share anything. They'd rather share with their brothers and sisters how they killed someone than how they lusted after someone. We legalize or legitimize. But what the Scripture tells us through God is that as we walk with Jesus and we receive His love and faithfulness for us, as we know His heart for us, we're empowered to live a different way. So Paul finally brings it together for us because he actually goes and quotes Genesis. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He, takes, he quotes Genesis word for word. And then he says, he interprets it, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You couldn't have something if the no and no and no was too subtle for you. Here comes Paul going, uh, what God said about husband and wife in Genesis, the actual mystery about that is that it's the connection of Christ and His church. It's about our relationship with Him. It's always been pointing to that. The, the meaning of marriage, the beauty of marriage, the wonder of marriage and sex in marriage is that it points to the relationship with Christ. He says this love between a husband and a wife, this dying for one another, sacrificing for one another, deferring to one another, putting one another first, it is at its very best. When you look at a marriage that you respect and you go, that's the best thing I've ever seen, at its very best, it's only a scratch and sniff of the marriage between the church and Jesus. It's pointing us there. It's a picture of there. And where you see a breakdown of marriage, it's a scratch and sniff of what it is never like with Jesus. Always faithful. Always loving. 
And this is why sex will never fully satisfy. Because even at its fullest, even at its best, it's pointing us to the one our hearts long for. So knowing God in the consummation. John writes that he sees a time when God will come and dwell with humanity. So he's, you know, the garden God dwelled with man. He sees a time where God will dwell with man again. That's where we're going. Jesus is fully redeeming all things. And he says that we will be God's people and he will be our God. He says we will know each other personally and experience each other fully. And then he says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying or pain, because the former things have passed away. Only the new things that Paul told about, the old things have gone, the new things have come, only the new things will exist. Not only has Jesus dealt with the old things, when we, are, uh, when, when we go to be with Jesus face to face, whether he comes in our lifetime or we go to be with him after this life, all of the old will, be, be, will pass away. Only the new will exist. We'll see him face to face. And the consummation of the age will be that our, will be this. It's, I mean, it's not any more complex. What is heaven going to be like? This is, what, this is exactly what heaven is going to be like. It's going to be like knowing God. That's it. What's the best part of heaven? Knowing God. What are you going to want to do all day? Know God. What about in a billion years? What are you going to be excited about? Knowing God. It's unimaginable, it's inconceivable, it's too big for our, our, us to understand, but the knowledge of God is going to fully satisfy every single longing that you have. The good ones, God has given us long, longings, He's given us hunger, desire for beauty, desi in marriage, desire for one another. And all those things which point us to something are going to be fully and eternally satisfied, joyfully in the presence of God. So, um, when a single Christian says, I want Jesus to return, but only after my honeymoon. <laughs> what this, and I said that, sorry, just so you know, because maybe none of you do and you feel judged if you're single. I definitely said that. What it suggests is that we think marriage and sex is a not-to-miss-out experience. And we forget that at its best and its fullest, it is a gift. It's a wonderful gift from God. But it's, it's not a saving gift. It's not a redeeming gift. It doesn't make us whole. It doesn't satisfy the longings of our hearts. It points us. At best, marriage, we can look at our, our spouses and say, Something of your kindness to me, your love towards me, your care for me, shows me what God is like, and that makes me desire Him so much more. Thank you. Or I guess we could say in the reverse, something of your unkindness to me, your um, ending love, reminds me what God is not like, and I'm so grateful. <laughs> Probably don't say that. You might escalate an argument. When Jesus returns, it's going to be the ultimate never-ending honeymoon. Not in a sexualized way. You know when you make a new friend and you're like, man, this is the friend I've always longed for. 
And then like a year later, you're like, what happened to them? They've become like everyone else. Or the honeymoon period just ended. Or you got a new car and you're like, this is the car I've always longed for. I'll always be satisfied. In a year's time, this piece of junk, the honeymoon period ended. With Jesus, there's a never-ending honeymoon of deep, intimate, joy-filled relationship. You will never in all eternity go, think, feel, wow, it was cool at first, but Jesus is just a bit average now. You'll never go, it's been great getting to know Jesus, but I think today I'd like to do something else. I promise you it will never happen. Because every single longing you have will only and for always be satisfied in Him and through Him. So how is this knowledge meant to help you? It's really been kind of like a biblical overview, and you go, great, now I know a whole bunch of stuff. What's this supposed to do for me? Um, What you will notice is I really haven't told you what to do with your sexuality. (laughs) The Sermon on Sex, and I haven't even really told you what to do with it. Uh, Let me just speak quickly to a few, and I'm still not really going to tell you what to do with it, but I am going to give just a, a snippet of advice. For singles, you're not missing out. You, you have a sincere longing uh, to experience sexual union, to be known in that way. That's, a, that's okay. You know, Paul even recognizes that for an engaged couple. Like, they long to get married and, and to burn. You know, Nat, that was Nas and I. We had to go to the elders of our church and go, uh, I just want you to know, I don't, I, I haven't, I ha- we haven't had sex, but I'd really like to. Um, I'd love, I'd actually love to. <laughs> And I don't know if that means I have to step down as leading this church or like, because I promise you not all my thoughts are pure. Um, and they were, they, they were great. They came back and we're like, no, we think you should get married sooner. It's like, hallelujah. This is, where did you guys come from? Well, that says that in the Bible. God's realistic about this. He's not pretending that you're a bunch of eunuchs with no longings or desires. And if you are a eunuch, Paul says that's fantastic. That's better. I, I, I do not know how that's better, but Paul says it is. Be realistic. Be real. But this is something that Jesus wants you to trust Him with. Jesus doesn't want you to go try, you know, come to church and worship Him, uh, give a little bit of your money and your time and your talents and your treasures, but your sexuality, go discover that on Instagram and with other people. Or jump on some kind of hookup site and you know, just have experiences. Jesus doesn't, He wants that part of you as well. And He wants you to trust you, Him with that, with your longings and desires. So you can say this. Here's a little prayer I wrote for you. While I wait for a spouse or your return, I place my sexual longings in your hands and ask you to help me pursue holiness. It is you I long for. For unmarried couples asking, how far can we go? Uh, it's okay, but I'm going to improve your, que- your question. The question you can maybe ask is, how much can we point each other to God? How much can you point each other to God? If something nudges towards sex, don't do it. If holding hands is too hot to handle, don't do it. If being in the same room alone is too much of a temptation, be weird and don't do it. Tell your friends, we can't be alone. 
How can you point each other to God? You may think that your deepest longing is for each other. I promise you, it is not. You're just trying to meet each other's deepest longing. But it's not you who can do it. Sexually immoral, you've blown it, you've given yourself away, something's been taken from you. John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, listen to this, God is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness, cleansing. Isn't it interesting that even in our godless society, sometimes sin, uh, sexual sin is spoken about as dirtiness or people who've experienced uh, sexual crimes against them might say they feel dirty. Their identity has been um, dehumanized. Isn't it interesting that the language of Scripture says that what God wants to do is come and cleanse you? He doesn't want you, in other words, God doesn't want you to feel dirty. He doesn't desire for you to feel dirty. He doesn't want you to feel dirty for five minutes or five days till He cools down and gets over it and He goes, oh, now are you ready to make me God of your life? He doesn't want you to, be, uh, to feel dirt to dirtiness about yourself at all. He wants to forgive you. He wants to cleanse you. And He wants to cover you in His righteousness. I remember a godly friend came to me. They were engaged in the, when we were still living in California. So you won't be able to guess who it is. You don't know him. Um, a godly friend came to me and he said, I'm really struggling with my fiance." Uh, they were about to get engaged, but uh, he hadn't asked the question yet. And he said, um, uh, you know, all through high school I worked and college and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and so I have this like massive savings account. And then I kept myself sexually pure. So he, he was in the kind of the legalized side of it in his thinking. I kept myself sexually pure. And, you know, she has got all the school debt and she uh, has slept with all these guys. And I, you know, I just don't think, I don't know that I'll be able to get over those two things. And, and in other words, he felt superior to her. And I said to him, I'm so glad you called me because I, I really do fear that if we were face to face, I'd punch you. Um, you, you she is a great grace to you. She is God's gift to you. And you don't deserve her. Jesus has redeemed her. He has washed her and cleansed her and He has blessed her and you don't see that. But, but she's showing you something that you won't get anywhere else. You, you, I hope you don't blow it with her because I'm not sure you'll get uh, someone as wonderful again. That was a bit of a legalistic uh, comment. I hope you're picking up on that. It's not okay to say those things to people. But, um, but this was the thing. You know, perhaps God in His providential love for her gave you a savings account so that you could participate in Jesus' redeeming work in her life and pay for her debt. What a privilege that you get to team with Jesus in her life. And perhaps God in His kindness 
has allowed you to bring a picture of sexuality into her world that robes her in the righteousness she already has in Jesus, the picture of dignity placed back on her as you call her your bride and she walks down the aisle to, towards you in her white dress and she sees the love in your eyes. What a privilege that He allows you to participate in robing her in dignity. They have an amazing marriage. They really do. He had a blip, just to give... I mean, you don't know who he is, but it was just a blip. Whoever you are, whatever your story, God wants to cover you in the righteousness of Jesus. Turn to Him. Let Him dress you. If you struggle with lust or sexual temptation, and you're married, find a friend... Ask them to help you see what your heart is longing for. Why do you turn to these things? Spouses, accept today that you are not Jesus. You will not satisfy all the longings of your spouse. And when they don't turn to Jesus, they will turn to other things. When we as couples don't turn to Jesus, we as couples will turn to other things. When we as individuals don't turn to Jesus, we as individuals will turn to other things. We cannot save each other from our, our sins. But hopefully, we can, through pain and hurt, forgive each other, be part of Jesus' healing in each other's lives, and point each other back towards Jesus. Don't try use sex to try and dull your boredom or your feeling of weariness or anxiety or burdens. You know, because Jesus isn't exciting, I need to try something sexual. Because God hasn't given me enough meaning, I need to find it in a sexual relationship. It's not going to work. Only God can bear your burdens and give you joy. And I'll close with this. Just a, a picture I want to give to you. Well, let me make these three calls. Nas, Nas shared them with me this morning. If I forget them, Nas, you can remind me, and then I'll share this with you. Whoever you are, as we come to communion, if you need to confess sin, then do that with someone today, before the Lord. Confess maybe a sin against you, maybe sin you've done. Confess it. If you need to repent of sin, you need to turn from, a, from, from something, share that with the person today and come and do that. What was the third one? And if you need to submit something, and obviously that something today is your sexual identity, and you need to submit that before the Lord, and you need to come under the love and care of Jesus, say, I submit this to you. Be reasonable. Be honest. I have these longings. I have these struggles. I have these desires. But I want you to be King and Lord of my heart. And I want to know you and long for you and not turn good things into ultimate things and not run after immoral things thinking that they can replace you. I submit myself to you. I long and wait for you. I want you to imagine, because this is kind of true, not kind of true, it is true, 
I wonder if you can close your eyes and imagine a wedding service. The rest of your life is like walking down the aisle. And I want you to imagine Jesus standing at the end, the bridegroom. His heart delighted. He's done everything to bring her to himself. The rest of your life is walking from where you are now to meet him, to be with him. And I want you to know the cheering of all of heaven as you take one step at a time, day by day, towards Jesus. Hear the cheers of heaven. There is not a single uh, heavenly being that is whispering or shouting, turn the other way, get out while you can. All of them are cheering you on. When you stumble and you fall, they're all cheering, get up again. He is waiting, he is longing. He is worthy. As you take a step, any bit of uncleanliness or dirt that you feel, any shame or guilt that you have, I want you to imagine miraculously it getting washed off, wiped away. You take a step and a stain that was there is gone. You take another step toward Jesus and another stain is gone. And you realize the closer you get to Jesus, the freer of all guilt and shame you are. And the scriptures say that one day we'll stand before Him perfect. We've made ourselves ready for Him. And so we turn our eyes to Jesus. We sang this morning that we would give everything to know Him. Father God, I pray for every single one of us in this room. Anyone who lives in Perth or Australia will experience a demonic temptation around sexuality that is built into the dynamics of our city. But you, Jesus, are over all principalities and powers. So whether it's greed or lust or covetousness or any other sin Satan might try to use in our neighborhood or our city or just in our hearts... You, Jesus, are overall. And you are the only one that can satisfy and solve these things. And so we turn our eyes and our hearts to you and we ask for your help. And we pray liberty and freedom. And wherever the enemy has got his work right in someone's life, I pray now in the name of Jesus that you will bring freedom to people's hearts, that you will bring healing to people's hearts, that maybe some who walked in here with a limp that no one knew about would walk out dancing with joy, knowing that Jesus robes them in righteousness freedom and forgiveness. Jesus, you have authority to give it. None of us do. But you, the King of all who's died on the cross, you have authority to give people freedom from sin, to forgive people, to cleanse people. And we do not stand up to you. We cannot stand up to you and say, I'm not worthy because you are above us and you are in every way superior to us. And if you speak liberty and freedom to us, help us to be humble enough and courageous enough to accept it. To believe what's almost unbelievable, that you truly forgive and cleanse and wash and robe in righteousness and give us dignity and love us. In your wonderful name. Amen.